Hey, you're listening to the What If Podcast. My name is Ryan, and we just wanted to say thank you so much to everybody who's been listening to the podcast. Uh, I'm going to keep it real. It's a lot more people than we thought it was going to be, and that's been really, really amazing. So thank you to everyone who's listening, to everyone who's shared a post or tweeted about the show at What If Pod. Uh, thank you so much. Um, if you haven't shared it with a friend yet, please do uh, tell your friends that you like it. We don't do any traditional advertising, so any word of mouth that you can put out there is amazing. Also, if you haven't left a rating or a review on iTunes, that helps us so much. It just takes a couple seconds to go in, leave us a review, tell everybody what you think about the show, uh, and, uh, and and it, and it means a lot to us. It makes a huge difference when those uh, show up on iTunes. So, again, thank you for su- for your support. Thank you guys for doing that, and um, we've been really excited about all the new listeners. So 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 thank you for listening. Uh, on top of that, we have another really quick, very cool announcement. Spencer. Yeah, we're doing our first live event uh, March 21st at the Nomad World Pub in Minneapolis. So if you're in the Twin Cities, uh, please come check that out. It's going to be at 7 o'clock. It is totally free. And uh, our good bud Eric Mason is joining us for the evening as well as a very special guest whose name may or may not rhyme with uh, G.O. Smess. So... If you're in the Twin Cities, come hang out with us on Tuesday, March 21st at the Nomad World Pub, and uh, we're going to be recording a live episode, and it's free, and it's going to be great. We hope we see you there. Let's start the show. Welcome to the What If Podcast with your hosts, Spencer Worth Davis and Ryan Copperood. What it do? What's happening? Uh, we're talking about what happens if you die. What if you died? Oh man! Which is which is the funniest what if question <laughs> we've had so far because it it's going to happen or has happened to one hundred percent of human beings who have ever existed. That we the it's only, not a what if question. You're it's going to happen. It's the one thing we all have in common. Yeah, we gonna die. What if you die? Well, too. I guess we got born. T- True. And then True. we die. True. Uh, so two the same things thing. we have in common. Hey, <laughs> we're getting started already. <laughs> um, but we're not just talking about what if you died, as in like death is a potentially scary or delicious or outrageous or intense thing. You called death delicious within the first 30 seconds. So. I'm just saying, depending on who you are, that might be a delicious thing to you. Um, Afterlife is full of pies, as far as I've heard. <laughs> Um, but but we're talking about more specifically today on the What It podcast. Uh, what if you died as it relates to uh, to near death experiences? Yeah, and not to not to like clarify too early, but I should I think I should say we're not necessarily talking about like you rode a rode a roller coaster at Valley Fair and it or was super Six Flags, scary. and it was very scary. And like at one point, a gear made a weird sound, and you were like, "Oh man, that was crazy! We almost died." Or like you you didn't like you didn't almost get into a car accident, or you got into a super bad car accident, but you like almost died. Uh, we're talking more about what happens in the mind, body, soul of people who like actually got to the brink of physiological like biological death yes uh and in that way the near-death experience term is kind of a weird one because a lot of the times it's referring to people that actually have died right so it's a technically more like a post-death or experience sure but for for our uh episode we're gonna go with the definition that was laid out by dr raymond moody 
He's so moody. (laughs) (laughs) Who is actually the person responsible for coining the term near-death experience um, and did a lot of the original research into this phenomenon. Thanks, Ray. Or at least the the modern research into this phenomenon. Okay. Um, This is sort of a a lengthy definition, but I think it covers everything that we're going to be talking about throughout the the rest of this episode. I'm here for it. Cool. I'm here for all of it. Um, this is, I'm going to read an excerpt from Raymond Moody's book called Life After Life from 1975. Let's go. In which he's describing what is sort of the uh, stereotypical near-death experience. Okay. And this is not a specific experience, but this is, from all of his research, if, if you compiled them all into one story, this is what it might look like. Yeah, yeah. Just to clarify, you read this book like very recently, right? I actually, I read two of his books this week in, in preparation for this show. Supporting Ray. Yeah. It's my guy. Shout out to Ray. I bought one. I got one from the library. So, you know, supporting Hennepin County and Dr. Raymond Moody at the same time. You're doing your research right. All yeah. right. What's Ray got to say for us? All right. This is from Life After Life. He says, a man is dying. And as he reaches the point of greatest physical distress, he hears himself pronounced dead by his doctor. He begins to hear an uncomfortable noise, a loud ringing or buzzing, and at the same time he feels himself moving very rapidly through a long, dark tunnel. After this, he suddenly finds himself outside of his own physical body, but still in the immediate physical environment, and he sees his own body from a distance, as though he is a spectator. He watches the resuscitation attempt from this unusual vantage point and is in a state of emotional upheaval. After a while, he collects himself and becomes more accustomed to his odd condition. He notices that he still has a body, but one of a very different nature and with very different powers from the physical body that he has left behind. Soon other things begin to happen. Others come to meet and help him. He glimpses the spirits of relatives and friends who have already died, and a loving, warm spirit of a kind he has never encountered before, a being of light, appears before him. This being asks him a question, non-verbally, to make him evaluate his life and helps him along by showing him a panoramic, instantaneous playback of the major events of his life. At some point, he finds himself approaching some sort of barrier or border, apparently representing the limit between earthly life and the next life. Yet, he finds that he must go back to the earth, that the time for his death has not yet come. At this point, he resists, for by now he is taken up with his experiences in the afterlife and does not want to return. He's overwhelmed by intense feelings of joy, love, and peace. Despite his attitude, he somehow reunites with his physical body, and he survives. Later, he tries to tell others, but he has trouble doing so. In the first place, he can find no human words adequate to describe these unearthly episodes. He also finds that others scoff so that he stops telling other people about his experience. Still, it affects his life profoundly, especially his views about death and his relationship to life. Well, goddamn, Ray. Yeah. Okay, I'm with it. Why the hell should I listen to Dr. Raymond Moody's definition slash description of what a near-death experience may or may not sort of be like? Why, 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 am, why is he qualified to give me that information? Yeah, so Ray was trained initially as a philosopher. Okay, good start. He, yep. <laughs> He has a degree in philosophy. He taught philosophy at, uh, not, I don't remember which university, but at a university level. Yep. Um, he's also trained as a psychiatrist. Okay. So he's got kind of a unique overlap of, of skills, both sure. as a philosopher and psychiatrist. Right, right. Uh, while he was in med school, he started hearing some of these stories, or initially one story about what he later went on to call the near-death experience. Got it. 
Which was um, not coined as such when he first heard about it. Correct. He, he's responsible for that term, okay. near-death experience. So when he was in med school, it was like, a guy almost or maybe actually died and something weird happened to him. Let's yeah, talk about I mean, it. In, in 1960, when he was in med school, it was a story that George told him. Okay. So... Shout out uh, to George for bringing us to this very moment <laughs> in the universe today. His uh, his friend in med school, or a, a professor at his med school who he became friends with, um, named Dr. George Ritchie, told him a story about the time that he had died and described a lot of the things that we just outlined in, in the definition okay. of dying, floating away, floating away from your body, traveling to different places. Um. And actually, one really interesting part about Dr. Ritchie's story that doesn't show up in necessarily all the near-death experience stories, um, he saw a specific location, so he floated out away from his body. George did. Yep. Okay. And this was the story that originally got uh, Ray Moody down the path of studying these near-death experiences and and collecting these stories. Hooked on death. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, George Ritchie's story, he floats away from his body, leaves the the hospital building, and travels a couple states over. And he finds himself in this city in Mississippi that he hasn't ever been to before. He doesn't recognize anything. And I don't know how he knows that he's in Mississippi, but he somehow intuitively knows that that's where he is. All right. And he starts trying to ask people on the street, like, hey... Where am I? What is this place? Pretty sure I'm dead. Right, what's going on here? <laughs> am I dead? Do I look dead to you? Hey guys. <laughs> and and, and no question. One, and it's like your kind of your stereotypical ghost story situation where no one's acknowledging him, no one's responding Got to it. him. No one can. <laughs> They're not like, hey man, leave us alone. We're trying to eat ice cream. <laughs> right. No one sees his his ghostly self. Okay. Um, and he eventually returns to his body. He ends up surviving. Several years later, he decides. Maybe I should go try and find that place that I traveled to and see if it's a real place. Oh, good. Turns out it is, and he was able to successfully navigate his way around this city that he had supposedly never been to before. Well, goddamn, George. Yeah. Was there a significance to the city for George specifically? Not as far as he could tell. Okay. It just, just, that was where his venture into the afterlife decided to take him for a short period of time. Yep, yep. That's pretty wild. Okay, so Ray had George tell him this story. So and he, he got he infatuated hears this with story the idea as a med student. Okay, um, while he's in med school, he's also teaching philosophy. So he mm-hmm. did his, uh, I guess it must have been a master's in, or maybe a PhD in philosophy, and then decided that he wanted to go to med school after that. Cool. So he's in med school, but also teaching philosophy at his university. What a good lifelong learner. Also, Ray, he was twenty-eight when he was doing this. Well. I will double down on my goddamn Ray. <laughs> yeah, Ray was killing it. Ray, Ray was killing it. Ray been busy. So he hears the story from one of his professors while he's in med school and uh, starts, while he's teaching philosophy classes, just sort of, you know, because they're teaching a lot of things um, from like stories of from Plato and Socrates and sort of the, uh, you know, the classic philosophy right, right. curriculum. Yeah, sure. And a lot of those stories and a lot of those texts deal with death and the afterlife and a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, where do we go from here kind of shit. Right. The Greeks, by the way, thought it was underground inside the hollow earth. Oh. Eh. We're going we're gonna to avoid, <laughs> we're gonna avoid <laughs> reptilian conversations today. I don't think I have Even, anything about yeah. aliens or reptilians in this whole... I actually tried to find something. 
and I couldn't. So of course you did. All no right. alien or for reptilian today, content for the whole episode. For today. So anyway, he's teaching this this philosophy course, and a lot of his stuff deals with death and the afterlife, and you know, it's it's a question that people have had for as long as there have been humans. And he get he hears throughout his years of teaching a couple more of these stories from his students. Now instead of one of these stories, he's got four or five of these stories. Right. He's he's collecting at this point. Well, and then once he's once he has a few of them, he starts putting it out there in his classes that maybe this is something he's interested in. Ah, okay. Because he's got every year, you know, a couple hundred students coming through his courses. He's figuring there's two to two to three of anybody in my two hundred a year ish students who may or may not have had a similar experience. Right. If four or five people had this experience, I'm sure more people have. Interesting. Maybe I can start documenting these and seeing if there are some similarities between them. Okay. So now he's really collecting. Yeah. Got it. And he ended up with a hundred some of these stories. That's significant. Yeah. And if you think about it, it was a lot harder to do in the 60s. Yeah, because you can't put out a Facebook post and be like, hey, does any of your friends or your friends' friends know about death and dying and what happens afterwards? Holler at your boy. The range of people he could reach was limited to like North Carolina. You like my Facebook speak? That's how yeah. everyone writes on everyone Facebook. Everyone sounds seventy percent dumber on Facebook. It's true. Those are facts. But yeah, you know, you're totally right. I mean, there's no way to I mean, unless like you're putting out like newspaper ads and saying, Hey, have you had a X, Y, or Z right. you know, come to this address? I mean, or call a number at a late enough point. Right. So he collects a hundred or so of these stories, which is pretty impressive. Right. And compiles them into this book called Life After Life, which is, which is basically just a bunch of these stories that he's acquired over the years. And he finds a bunch of similarities between them. And so he, he narrowed it down to basically nine things that these stories have in common. Okay. All right. Well, go ahead. I'll ask after. Okay. So not every story has all of these facets but most have some and he had not heard any story which had all of these facets okay but every near-death experience had at least a couple of these and most of the near-death experience stories had most of these things and just to clarify are these things that happen are these are are the are the overlapping things things that happened in the experience itself or are these are there also things that are outside of the experience that are related to this? As in like I died or was dying or was in a hospital or drowned, or is that outside of the actual experience itself? So you know, do you, does that make sense? I think I understand. He, he collected stories from people that they, they were all firsthand stories yep. from people that had either been clinically dead, meaning their heart was stopped Whoa. or had been, <laughs> Whoa. yeah, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> or had Heavy been, shit. had been, like imminently on the brink of being clinically dead. Okay. So in one way or another, it could have been a variety of things like smoke inhalation or drowning or the circumstances are, are irrelevant. Really? Got it. They, it. They somehow ended up either being dead or very, very close to being dead. Okay. And the nine things you're about to really are things that happened to people in that state. Yes. Let's go. Okay. The first one, and he, he outlined some of these in the, the description we gave at the beginning of the show, sure, but this sure. is sort of just a uh, a bullet point list of those. Yep. First one is a strange sound. Most people hear some sort of buzzing or ringing no- noise. Some people hear music. Okay. Number two, 
peace and painlessness. While people are dying, they may be in intense pain, but as soon as they leave the body, all pain vanishes and they mm. experience peace. Mm. That one I thought was kind of interesting because a lot of people, you would think, if you're you know looking at this in any sort of religious context, some people would have to have net negative experiences, right? If you die and you go to some afterlife, not everyone should be peaceful. If you you know, yeah, I mean, from if, a Western it, Christian perspective, yeah, and even a specific Western Christian's perspective, you would have to like. Yeah, but okay. Somebody's well, near-death well, experience should be being like poked in the forehead by a demon over and over for eternity, yeah, being right? Being plunged into f- a demon, flame, <laughs> flame, and <laughs> just fl- slowly fucking a demon for eternity. Oh no! Anyway, number three, out-of-body experience. The dying often have the sensation of rising up and floating above their own body while they're surrounded by a medical team and watching it down below. Okay. While feeling comfortable, he notes, very few people report this being an uncomfortable situation, even though it would seem like it would be extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, because it would be psychologically pretty fucking weird to look at your own self. You would think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The tunnel experience. The next experience is that of being drawn into darkness through a tunnel at an extremely high speed until reaching a realm of radiant golden white light. Which is sort of like our Hollywood slash- Right cliched in my mind go to the light like right. i mean that's i don't even I, I can't even cite where that's from as much as it is just like from because society. it's so ubiquitous yeah. yeah i always picture the uh the scene from the end of 2001 where he's right traveling to the next dimension or through right. a wormhole it's, or whatever that's supposed to be getting faster yeah. and faster yeah, yeah. until it's yeah Hey, a movie I've seen. What up? I'm just going to keep referencing that one as often as possible because I know you've seen it. Because you know I've seen yeah. 2001. It's the one movie I know for sure you've seen. What about like Men in Black though? You know I've seen Men in Black <laughs> so many times. When are we going to start our movie podcast? Space Jam. Number five. Rising, list of rising rapidly into the heavens. Instead of a tunnel, some people report rising suddenly into the heavens and seeing the earth and the celestial sphere. It's hard to say. Celestial sphere as they would be seen by astronauts in space. That's interesting. Go ahead. It's also interesting because he's writing this before humans had been to outer space. What year is this? The book was published in 1975, but most of this research was done like mid-60s. Okay, so we were close. We were like right on the brink, but these stories would have been from even earlier. Right, because he was collecting them pre- So we're looking at like late 50s, early 60s probably for most of these stories. That's interesting because I feel like you're- you're combining elements of like traveling long spaces towards something. And you're also combining elements of like out of body overhead type experiences, but in like kind of a different way, you know, like they, they, I'm not saying they're the, they should be lumped in together that they're the same, but just that there's some like interesting overlaps in a couple of the ones you've already mentioned. For sure. Uh, number six, people of light. Once on the other side of the tunnel or after they've risen into the heavens, the dying people meet people who glow with an inner light. They often find that friends and relatives who have already died are there to greet them. Is that, do you have any context around like whether that's literally or figuratively as in like. Which part? The lightness. Like are they, are they glowing? 
we've all met people who are like, oh, she has a glowing personality. Or are we talking about like glowing as in there's like a brightness to them? We're literally. talking like the end of Return of the Jedi type glowing. Oh. Yeah? I, am I two for two so Let's far? Let's go. Okay. <laughs> Ryan has seen movies. We're t- <laughs> Ryan has seen movies. Ryan has seen movies. Okay, so they're and like- And Obi-Wan is dead. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So we're, we're talking dead Obi-Wan in the- uh, the Ewok forest kind of glowing. Got it. Almost, almost like celestial in nature. Very ethereal. Kind of ethe- ethereal beings. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Uh, number seven, the being of light. After Ooh. people, after Ooh. meeting the people of light, the dying often meet a powerful spiritual being whom some ha- have identified as God, Jesus, or other religious figure. Hmm. Number eight, the life review. The being of light presents the dying with a panoramic review of everything they have ever done. That is, they relieve, relive every act they have ever done to other people and come away feeling that love is the most important thing in life. Okay. And finally, number nine, the reluctance to return. The being of light sometimes tells the dying that they must return to life. Other times they are given a choice of staying or returning. In either case, they are reluctant to return. The people who choose to return do so only because of loved ones that they do not wish to leave behind. Interesting. Interesting. It's interesting because it seems like for the most part until that last one, everything that's mentioned, like the first eight have no, um, like no real like consciousness or like autonomy attached to them in mm-hmm. terms of ideas. Like they're like things that are happening to you. I'm you're, you're floating above my body. Happen. I'm yeah. being pulled down here. I'm being pushed through a tunnel. You're a spectator in it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas that last one, that last one cites an element of self. Right. I personally have an emotion or a feeling about what's happening to me right now. And I want to not, I like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's a, there's like a will in that last one. That's not really expressed in any of the other ones, which is I, interesting to me to that point. What comes out in a lot of the stories in life after life though, is that that will, uh, only exists as an unselfish desire. Hmm. So if you, if you were to say, I want to go back to finish this thing that I'm working on or because I didn't make enough money or because right. whatever, right. um, that doesn't seem to enter people's minds or to hold any weight. Um, it's for the, loved ones. Yeah. Or... When it's something like, well, I have young children and I need to be there for them or I take, you know, I'm taking care of my my mother who was sick or whatever. Right. That seems to pull people back. Interesting. But personal, more selfish desires don't. Interesting. Whatever that's worth. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's an interesting like anecdotal element to the whole thing. So, okay. So, so Ray, Ray's out here <laughs> doing some, doing some pokeball death story collection. <laughs> yeah. Um, he he's got the he's got the Mewtwo's of of Pokeball death stories. He caught Pokemon all the stories. Death stories. Yeah. He caught a lot of stories. Well, well, but so actually, that was going to be my question: is like a hundred is a lot, and especially if you have a hundred that have overlapping characteristics. I mean, I would imagine at some point you've got like you know he's probably convinced to the point that he's like I'm down to write a book because I've heard enough of these and they have enough overlapping characteristics. I feel like I'm pretty convinced about this. Are there like, are there broader, I guess, like, are, is there more of this that goes outside of Ray that's like, 
I mean, yeah. Because I guess there's, I guess there's, I've seen a lot of instances of uh, supernatural stuff that, for some reason, always go back to one person who had that one person tell them that story right. multiple times. Right. Not to you know, not to be shitty or whatever, but like, and of course, obviously, this dude's like a doctor and a really bright dude with lots of credibility to his name. I guess I'm just saying that like how far does this rabbit hole go? Like, are, are, do we have more of these that are good or as good or better or, or proofs of any of these things, yes. I guess. Um, and, and what, where I think his Ray's work was really useful was in just calling some attention to this because it, it wasn't something that anyone was studying or looking into at the time. Sure. And to, to lend some credibility to it. Right. Right. Um, as it, like, someone, didn't even have a name at that point. Right. To, to give it a name, to start compiling these stories, to lend credibility to it as someone you know, with a, a PhD and an MD. Right. Um, and to start just kind of getting this out there in terms yeah. of something that was an option. I think where, and, and he stayed fairly unbiased in terms of trying to say what it was. He didn't assign any, you know, spiritual or other value to it. He just right, sort of right. said, I don't know what this is, but here's what people are telling me. Yeah. And here are the similarities that, and the patterns that I've started to identify through these stories that I've heard. It's uh, an- and he does acknowledge that it's, it's biased in a sense. Sure. Because these are stories from people that have come to him yep. or that he's, you know, interacted with in a, in a fairly limited location and potentially and, knowing the premise beforehand. Right. And so looking at things like, you know, seeing the this being of light in quotes or identifying it as God or Jesus. Yeah. He talks about people are, are only going to uh acknowledge or talk about things that are he calls them live options mm-hmm. for them. So as someone raised Catholic in the in the southern United States seeing a Hindu God in the afterlife is not a live option for you. Yeah. Right. Right. It's not part of your consciousness. Right. And so he does acknowledge that there's some inherent bias to the stories that he's telling and that that's not a complete picture. Sure. His goal was more to say like, look at this weird shit I found. Right. Can anybody figure out what this is? Cause and I've let's got start a, having the conversation. I've got a piece of it. I've got a man and kind of a lot of it, like yeah. maybe a big piece of weird shit. And let's see what else is out there because this seems like a pretty big deal for no one to be talking about it. Sure. Ray. <laughs> yeah. Ray. Ray. Ray did some work. Ray did work. Um, since then it did kind of kick off this more scientific academic study of near death experiences. So Ray put this book out in 70, 75, five. Okay. And actually took three years off of school to go tour and promote this book okay interesting This book was fucking huge it cracked it sold it is to this day sold over 13 million copies wow which in the 70s was crazy whoa that's like if um if my math is close to right that's like half the united states (laughs) i think right yeah should we we, you know we should do we should make really like just 
horribly bastardized bad claims about every things. person in the united states bought seven copies of this book yeah the more that we mm-hmm. do that the 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 worse or the less bad it'll look when we make like mild inaccurate right, right. inaccurate statements just make intentionally wildly inaccurate which statements. happens all the time yeah. for what it's worth we've considered doing a corrections episodes because we've had a handful of things we'd like to say a little bit differently than we said them the first time what if we did something right <laughs> a lot uh, of, what if a lie was born all the time so a lot of other people since 75 have been inspired to do some research and look into this and write about it and for what it's worth i have to imagine that if a guy of his medical social intellectual stature puts out a book that goes i'm not trying to say anything other than i've got a hundred stories here and they Mm -hmm. all kind of share these characteristics but i'm just telling my version of the story Hella people of his same intellectual stature have to start going, oh, interesting, isn't it? Maybe if I look around wherever the fuck I am, I'm going to find a hundred of my own. Or if it's not a hundred, you're going to find 15 or 20 or whatever. That's got to kick off some small revolution. I mean, I guess that's kind of the whole fucking purpose of like science as a concept is start right. a conversation let other people who are as smart as you carry on the conversation but especially but, with a topic like this that like no one really wants to be the first person putting a lot you're putting a lot on the line by being like look at this wild paranormal shit you know as a 30 year old newly newly trained doctor and yeah. philosopher you're putting your your reputation on the line because you're kind of and i guess maybe we'll talk about this more later but like you're kind of leaning towards the afterlife conversation. Well, and so I, I read, I, he wrote a, a follow-up uh, to Life After Life called Paranormal, My mm-hmm. Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife. Yo. That came out, I can't... Well, there well, there we go. I guess, yeah. I, guess I don't, I was, <laughs> I don't remember it. what year it was, but I also read that book. Uh, whatever, I can't find the year. But he actually talks about, in Paranormal, he talks about when he was going around giving these lectures, people would actually get mad at him because there would be a lot of Christian people that would come out and be like, I read that. And my read was that you were confirming scientifically that there's an afterlife and we go to heaven. And he had to be like, no, I'm not saying anything. I left my opinion out of it. I'm relating these stories. Yeah. I'm collecting and compiling and relating these stories from the view of, from a scientific medical point of view and saying, Look at this stuff that we don't know how to explain. And confirmation bias for so many of those people is going, oh, when they die or when they died for a little bit, they saw a great being of light. God is real. A lot of people took it in that way of, oh, you just confirmed that there's an afterlife and yeah, you must right. be promoting Christianity and all these other things. And he's like, no. I don't know what I'm promoting. Yeah, I, I, I found a bunch of weird stories and then I told them to you. Right. And as a scientist and as a doctor and as a philosopher, I'm trying to figure out what it all means. I never said I know what any of it means. Right, right. And yeah, he wrote a follow-up book called Paranormal that addresses sort of the the years of his life that came after that. And, and the fallout, I imagine, to he, some extent. He eventually kind of went off the rails a little bit. Well. And well. Uh, also- <laughs> Well. <laughs> really, if you have read Life After Life or if you do end up reading it, first of all, it's a very quick read. I'd highly recommend it. Paranormal- uh, he in Paranormal, he describes he had his own near-death experience after he attempted to kill himself. Oh, no. Tying back into what you were just talking about. Ray, come on, He made Ray. it. He made it. He's alive. He's fine. 
Did Ray uh, do it to try to have a near death experience? Because, no, he um, he had this uh, he had this thyroid condition, and when it got really bad, he would actually get to the point where, uh, if untreated, he could go into psychosis. Oh shit! And so he was on the road for a long time promoting this book. <laughs> the book did really poorly. He was depressed, and he was in psychosis from his untreated thyroid issue. The second book, not the first book, did poorly. He not the first book. One of his later books. Okay. Okay. Um. His career sucked. He'd just gotten divorced and he was like knee deep in this thyroid induced psychosis. Right. And he tried right. to kill himself. Had near death experience. Wrote about it in the book. He also then went on later to well, fa- goddamn Ray. to facilitate <laughs> Hold on. He went on to facilitate seances based on gazing into crystal balls. Ray maybe went a little bit off his rocker later in life. Oh man. But his books are pretty lit and he did a lot of good research. Do you ever do you ever feel like uh do you ever feel like you know a lot of the cats that like dwell in these worlds for really long periods of time really like end up in a bad place? Yeah. And also Oh yeah. Well there's only there's only also, so you far you can like, go. And also do you ever feel like we're about to do like you Absolutely. know a hundreds of yes. hours of <laughs> shit yes. exploring the shit and you and yes. I are both going to be crazy people Dude, in like 10 years? If you ever want to have <laughs> if you ever want to have like a real bad time. Yo, that's so real. If you ever want to have a real bad time. Yep. Uh well, two things you can do. No, I don't like watch bad times. Watch, but, <laughs> but okay, let's do if it. If you want a glimpse into the future of the What If podcast yep. hosts' lives, uh, watch the movie Mirage Men about a guy who. Oh, this is a great movie! Great movie, the alien movie, the, the documentary. Yeah, about, about the, the guy, who, the misinformation around UFOs and stuff. I've and the guy. seen movies. <laughs> I've seen movies. <laughs> three for three tonight, bro. Bruh, That's impressive. Thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm like coming into my own. Usually you're 0 for 19. I feel good. You're, I feel proud. Yeah, your average is up to like 0.07 Also for now. what it's worth, Mirage Man is a movie that you and I have seen, and I would say like 98% of the population probably hasn't yeah, seen. Yeah, right. No. It's, just uh, a, it's a rarity. So about it's about a guy who thinks he's seeing UFOs and right. gets intentionally fed misinformation by a government agent to the point where he kind of goes insane. Yeah. Uh, also, read up on the life of John Keel, who did a lot of this work and ended up uh, being driven kind of insane yeah by, uh, yeah yeah okay we'll we'll see you guys there we'll, we'll <laughs> still be doing the podcast just crazy as balls so ray did a, a lot of really impressive work it sounds like it. Maybe, i mean maybe went a little too deep and started trying to have seances with crystal balls but but before that it sounds like for the most part really all he was doing was being a vehicle for true stories that were confirmable by the people that told them to him to the extent which to the extent with which, like that's that's just scientific research and and journalism to yeah. some extent. I mean, that's just regurgitation. And for what it's worth, the crystal ball seance thing worked. So, <laughs> so what's up? Maybe now? he was onto something. Maybe yeah. Ray knows it all. Um, one of the other things I read in prep for this episode. Yeah, yeah. And to kind of bring us closer to present day in terms of what's going on with near death experiences and and the research surrounding it. Yep. I read a book called Spooked. Spook, not spooked. Spook, Spook. singular. Yes, by Mary Roach. And the the book uh, examines a bunch of different scientific explanations or hypotheses for what happens when we die. So she looks at like reincarnation and communicating with the dead. And uh, there's a chapter about near-death experiences. Yep. And so she looks primarily at the work of, of two people. Uh, the first of which is Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia. Bruce, Bruce. 
Bruce is researching near-death experiences in uh, cardiac patients, so people who are having problems with their hearts. Which, from the the reading that I've done in prep for this, seems to be like a lot of the, or not a lot of, but like a, a I would say a decent amount of the cases are related to people who like go into cardiac arrest in the hospital. It's a really hard thing to, to study extent. because you can't ethically ask people to be dead and see what happens. Yeah, right. So what he's looking hey, at? Hey, 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 die, just die for me for like just, just stop, like, just stop breathing just for a while. Just die for me for like a minute, just like right. one minute. Come on, <laughs> just sign sign these fifty eleven waivers first. It'll like probably be fine. Just die for me for like one second. We just want to ask some questions. <laughs> Come on. So Bruce looked yeah, at work. cardiac patients that were having internal defibrillators installed. Oh right. So Wait, internal ha- defibrillator is that like a like a um, you you can have a little thing put inside your chest like a pacemaker sort of it sounds a little more intense than a pacemaker all right uh, people who have chronic heart issues and whose hearts may stop <laughs> semi regularly yes regularly you can have a not- defibrillator installed inside your body whoa that will automatically shock it back into rhythm if it whoa. if it were to stop or get off rhythm whoa. Whoa! All right, that's a thing I didn't know existed until so, this very moment. Yeah, I didn't either until I read this book. When when people are having it installed, <laughs> though, the last like box to check before they're like, "All right, off you go, go live your life with your defibrillator." They have to check to make sure it's working. So they got to zap the shit out of your heart for a second. Okay. Yes. And also, but, sometimes it stops your heart. No way. Okay. <laughs> so there are. Did I get it? Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> This so sounds what, like the worst idea ever. I, I totally agree. So what they do are uh, what they do is if you shock, I, I don't exactly know how the science of this works, but if you shock it in one way, it'll actually stop your heart. So they intentionally stop the person's heart and then restart it to make sure that the defibrillator is working. Bruh. Which I don't understand because if it's not Bruh. working, then you just kill the person. Yeah. Right. Right. Oops, so, we installed it wrong. But so 100% of the time when they do this procedure, the person who's having it installed, their heart is stopped for a, for a second or two or right, right. who knows. What Bruce did with these people whose hearts were stopped, <laughs> he, took, he took a laptop, <laughs> laptop computer. Yeah. And in the corner of this room where these patients are, he put the laptop up near the ceiling of the room. Yeah. And he flattened it out. And put it so that the the screen is facing the ceiling of the room. Yeah, yeah. And on this screen, he put a bunch of different images. Yeah. Like very brightly colored animated images. Sure. Um, so anything from like uh, a brightly colored like kids animated airplane to one of, one of the images is a blue duck. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, something, the idea is that something that's going to stick out if someone were to see it, it would be a, you know. A recognizable, recallable image. Okay. So going back to what Moody was saying about yeah. one of the, the most common experiences that someone sure. has during a near-death experience if is that I'm, they float up away from their body, right. towards the ceiling, out of the building, etc. So if I'm looking down at myself with my brand new fucking defibrillator installed in my heart, and I'm looking at myself with my dead, dead-ass heart from the ceiling of my hospital room... I'm going to see my my blue duck on a laptop and be like, oh, that's weird. Anyway, it's right. weird. Also weird being dead. Also, oh, wait, I got to go back. And then yeah. they come back to life. Or, you know, when I interview you about the experience afterwards, I can say, you know, did anything seem out of place or out yeah. of the ordinary? And be like, oh, yeah, there was a blue duck in the corner. That was weird. Yeah, right, right. Um, so that's, that's this study that he's been doing. 
so far he has not had any success with it. Okay. But he thinks it may be due to the fact that all of these patients, when they're having this procedure done, are very heavily drugged. Well, it's also a very controlled death too, right? Like, right. I, like one of the things I've seen is that, um, I think, I think the stat that I read was that, um, your brain function doesn't flatline in terms of like a true death until about 20 seconds or sometimes longer after your heart stops. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine that if they're kicking people's hearts off and back on again, they're waiting 20 plus seconds. Like, right. especially that would seem pretty irresponsible. That would seem, <laughs> that would seem like a very aggressive test. Right. Um, right. So to, to some extent, I guess, I mean, I, I, I see what he's aiming at in terms of what he could be accomplishing with it. But I, part of me also goes, well, he's probably not going to get necessarily the same results because people aren't quote unquote dying in the way that other people who've had these experiences are quote unquote dying. And I, I totally agree. And, and I wonder too, if it has something to do with the fact that none of those people are expecting to die when they go into that procedure. So there's not, if it is a, a medically uh, sure. induced type of thing, if there's a, if, if there's some sort of rational explanation for your brain re- releases certain chemicals, which right. produce so-and-so effect. If you're if you're not expecting to die or don't think you are dying, does that change what happens at that moment? Versus I was in a car crash, it seemed really serious. I saw my legs all mangled and then I passed out. Right. So right. the last thing going through your brain is holy shit, I think I'm dying, as opposed to, oh, they're just checking this thing that they put in me that's actually gonna make me healthier. Right. Or or if if dude is or gal is or your pronoun is drugged to the extent with which they're able to be having this test or having this surgery or whatever are they even conscious to right. the point where they would that have any understanding of really right. what's going on right. i mean not i guess i'm just building on your your thought not yeah. not only not and only do you not know you're dying, maybe you don't know where you are even. And that's, maybe you that's Grayson's a, theory is that the ana, the anesthetics are affecting sure. the consciousness of the people to the to the point where they, even if they are having experiences, they're not able to recall them sure. after the fact. Sure. Uh, the one other one that uh, Mary Roach talks about in Spook is Dr. Michael uh, Sabom, Sabom, S-A-B-O-M. Okay. Sab- we're going with Sabom. Okay. Um. He interviewed, again, 116 cardiac arrest patients. Again, that's like a sizable cross-section. Yep. And this time it was people who, this was sudden, this was unexpected. These people's hearts stopped. They weren't going in for a procedure. They weren't in a hospital. Their heart just stopped working. Um, Six of these people recalled near-death experiences. He compared the stories of the six patients who had, again, we're getting down to now a pretty small group, but he compared yeah. these six stories of people who had near-death experiences. Um, and he he compared their stories to medical reports of their resuscitations. So you go to the hospital, you can okay. get a list of, right. we administered CPR, we used an external defibrillator, we injected sure. blah, 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 blah. The down doctor down recommended the X, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Yeah. And then he asked those patients to describe what hap- what they saw happening to themselves and cross-reference the two. Oh, interesting to see if they matched up in a way of like, yeah. were they aware of what was happening when they yep. weren't sensibly aware of what was happening? Yeah. 
None of the six patients contradicted the medical reports, nor were there any significant medical errors, meaning none of them said... Nobody fucked up on either side. Right. The, the two perfectly matched for all six of these patients. When was this? Uh, this would have been mid to late 2000s, so within the last 10 years or so. Whoa, that's kind of fucking trippy. He also asked 25 cardiac patients who did not have near-death experiences to describe what they would see if they were to watch someone be resuscitated, just to, just to check, like, could the average person pretty accurately describe Suss what out. a resuscitation would look sure, like? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, 22 of the 25 contained obvious medical errors, as he put it, like something that would never happen in a hospital, much less in a specific instance. Interesting. So like off- someone was being injected with something that would have definitely killed them or so the, the, the paddles on the defibrillator were applied to their forehead or something ridiculous. Yeah, you know? right, right. So, so the off-top description of what would happen was incorrect as fuck, but the actual description of what happened to them personally was generally on point. What yeah. was this guy's name again? Michael Sabom. Michael S-A-B-O-M Sabom. Or Sabom or... And this know. is in Spook, the Mary Rush book. Correct. Interesting. Yep. We should, we should and we'll, we'll link to uh, all three of the books that we've mentioned so far today. Yeah. Um, that's a trip, man. I, I don't know what to do with some of that shit. <laughs> like... It makes me feel weird. Yeah. So we, we've kind of established what a near-death experience is, what it can look like, what people are doing with it. Uh, and the fact that they happen. They I mean, definitely I, happen. I mean, they happen. Like Whatever I, it is absolutely happens. Let's, let's take a quick break uh, yeah. and then come back and hear a very specific and oh, man. unique to the What If podcast near-death oh, experience man. story. Uh, and, and by unique to the What If podcast, uh, we, what we actually mean is uh, the first time literally ever heard by anyone ever. Exactly. It's an exclusive, uh, which is really, really exciting, and, but also really, really beautiful, uh, beautiful shit and something really, really cool that we're really excited to share. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with the What If podcast. We want to hear from you. Send us a message. Email hi, that's H-I, at whatifpodcast.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 612-246-4614. We're back. It's the What If Podcast. And uh, uh, we're talking about death and dying. (laughs) What if you died? What if you died? You're going to die. Well, you're going to die. Not like right now. That wasn't a threat. It's just going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But it's also, uh, what if you died and then, like, maybe you didn't die so much? And then undied for yeah. a while. Maybe you yeah. undied or maybe for, like, a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we left you, we were talking about um, an exclusive that we have here. Uh, and it's an exclusive that's, I would say, probably somewhat personal to, uh, to Spencer. So, um, yeah, what, uh, what do you got for us, Spencer? So, my dad... Uh, Dr. Michael Worth Davis had a near-death experience when he was a child. I had heard a version of the story when I was a kid from him. Yep. Um, and I think it, it's, in a lot of ways, one of the things that got me initially interested in like the whole paranormal out there realm of stuff, just thinking, like, I didn't know that was possible, and now it's in my brain as something that's possible, and 
I still don't really understand it was it mean. Yeah, yeah. Um so I I asked uh my dad if he would be willing to tell that story and let me ask him some questions about it. Um and so I, I interviewed him and let him let him tell that story yeah, and, yeah. and ask some follow up questions and yeah, we're gonna we're gonna play that interview. What's um just before we before we dive into it, do you remember the first time you heard your dad tell ev- even any version of this story? I don't remember specifically. I was I was fairly young though, probably nine or ten. Okay, yeah. sure, sure. Um, and and when this story happened to your dad, he was how old again? Seven. He was seven. Yeah. And your dad today is. He is 66. 66. Okay. Yeah. So, so this yep. is almost a 60 year old story. Yep. Which is interesting because of how vividly he tells this story. Yeah. I'm not going to ruin anything. I guess all I'm going to say is listen attentively <laughs> to the next 25 yeah. or so minutes. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited that we get to share this with you guys. I'm so thrilled and um, it's fascinating and amazing so we're gonna meet you on the other side of this and uh it's it's gonna be great uh enjoy this yeah this is uh dr michael worth davis telling the story of his near-death experience I think the story you're talking about is when I was ill. <clears throat> I had mm-hmm. German measles that were complicated, and I don't know what the real phrase for is, but they, they're hemorrhaging, so they're called black measles. And that can cause fever and convulsions and complications. And so I actually went into uh, some kind of reaction to that, to having the measles, Went into convulsions, high fever, um, had to be hospitalized, had to be put on a bed of ice to get the fever down. Well, uh, these were all stories that were told to me by my grandparents. Like what kind of, what level of fever? It was high enough to perforate both eardrums. Okay. So I don't know really what the temp was, 105, 100, like that. Okay. Uh, but I'm seven, so seven and not very... Stocky. I was a pretty right. skinny kid. Right. So at any rate, the story is my grandfather watched them cut my pajamas off and just put me on a bed of ice to bring the fever down. And then I was in a medically induced semi-comatose state. My experience was I was I saw myself laying in bed, hospital bed, with the tubes in my up my nose and down my throat. <clears throat> My grandmother was knitting at the end of the bed. My grandfather was reading something, magazine. So you're outside of your own body looking I, like, a, so you're above yourself looking exactly. back down at the room? So I saw myself in bed mm-hmm. and my grandparents at the foot of the bed. Okay. But I didn't really, I don't know how to describe that. I was looking down, right, at the hospital. Like seat. you were floating above yourself. Right. Yeah. Okay. But I didn't actually see myself floating. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm right. in my well, body. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was odd. And then, because uh, you know, <laughs> it like, is. <laughs> wow, this is a very strange dream. And then, without any words ever, and without any real transition, then I felt an arm and I looked down and saw an, an arm 
obviously a male arm, holding me around the chest, and we left the hospital, I mean, by floating. Mm -hmm. And walls and things didn't seem to matter. And part of this was just drifting in, like, space, and part of it was, with the other hand, he would... He, I'm saying he, mm-hmm. would move the hand in front of my face in a sweeping motion, and I would see things. And the things I would see would be towns or tops of roofs or sidewalks with people walking on them. And I would hear music. Could you tell if they were real like real places? Were you seeing... Well, this is where it comes in later. Yeah, okay. these were real places. You know, they were tops of, of buildings and, and cities and stuff. And again, no, no verbal, but total understanding of what I was seeing, even though I'm a little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm seeing p- people and places and music. Music was important. I was hearing songs. So <clears throat> I liked this. It was enjoyable. It was not scary at all. It was a place to be. It was just where I wanted to go. And I got the sense through this voice that <clears throat> I so, couldn't stay. So were you were you hearing someone speak to you, or was it just, just knowing, thoughts? Just knowing. Okay. Okay. I knew there was a person with me, some entity with me, but there was no language, and I never looked up to see. Okay. I couldn't. I was there was just some sort of understanding of. Yeah, okay. I was being held up, and I understood what was happening without anybody telling me. Mm-hmm. And. <clears throat> the sense I got was, you can't stay here. You have to go back. You can't stay here. Did you have any sense of how long no. the experience was? Not at all. It okay. felt like a long time because of the the journey. It felt like I was gone for a long time. Um, but I had no sense of that at all. So you somehow understood that you had to go back, meaning like back to, back to the, the hospital. hospital, back to yourself? Back to wherever I was. And I didn't really want to. I mean, mm-hmm. part of me just wanted to stay in that state of understanding and being shown things. So I went back. I don't really remember what happened, how I got back, or any of that stuff. I just, but what happened was I, w- I saw myself entering the room and myself in bed, mm-hmm. and then I'm in myself, if you will. And I was taking the tubes out of my nose and throat. You were conscious again. I was, and I said, and I hadn't spoken for, I don't know how long, weeks. So I'm very hoarse, and my grandfather said, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> and I said, I'm ready to go home now. Hmm. And of course, they called the doctors. I mean, they were crying. Mm-hmm. Doctors came in, and that started me on the recovery to be able to leave the hospital. Were you going to ask? Well, something? during... During the time that you were having this experience, do you know, like, did you ever, did your heart ever stop? Were you actually Yes. Oh, dead? that's right. That's right. Or was it? During that time that I was gone, mm-hmm. my grandfather tells me, and he saved my life, that my heart stopped beating. And so I had to have adrenaline injected directly into my heart. This would have been pre-defibrillator and oh, all yes. that. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was none of that. And CPR probably wasn't yeah, anywhere around. Yeah. And then... During that time, it stopped again, and so had another bout of that. Okay. And I don't remember any of that, of course, because I felt like I wasn't you really there. there. Yeah. But I, Do you know for, for how long? For how long? That your, your heart stopped? 
No, although there was some kind of machine on me because my grandfather called the nurses and said, you've, you've got to help my son. He called me son. Yeah. You've got to help my son. You've got to help my son. Um, <clears throat> and so it was something warning to, to them. So I don't okay. really know. That's right. I forgot about that. And so <laughs> forgot about that part where you actually well, died for a because minute. I was thinking about something else here. <laughs> so a couple of things now as I get older. So I left the hospital and I was weak, of course, and <clears throat> they were they, the medical staff and my grandparents were overly protective. It's like, you know, you can't run, you can't, you know. Well, you I was so hoarse I had to like eat ice cream and Certain things irritated my throat from the stuff that was in it. <clears throat> um, and they didn't know if uh, my hearing would totally come back or what what the damage to my heart might be, any of those kinds of things. Were you were you actually deaf when you left? Because yeah. it was both, what I heard, both your drums, right? Mm, what I heard was shh, that kind of sound because of the... Just constantly? Was, constantly, even while you're sleeping, because mm-hmm. it's just air passing through your ears. And I could, I started reading lips just naturally because I wanted to know what people were saying around me. Right. But yeah, that that took a long time, and my my right ear is still um, <clears throat> it's got scar tissue, is what I've been told on that eardrum, so it has a different sound pattern to it than my left ear. Mm-hmm. So I never have been able to talk on the phone on my right ear; it's always left. I think what's interesting is I can call it up and see it again, real life, just see it. And then there's some stuff that have that sounds odd to other people when I talk about it, but like because what? of what I've seen when I was young, I every now and then I experience that again, and I go, "Oh yeah, I've been here before. I've heard this music before. I've done this before." Like in a, a déjà vu absolutely. kind of way, okay. a déjà vu, but just absolutely but. certain. So my first of that was my mother. My biological mother was pregnant for me when her first son died. He died in July, and I was born the following January. So I never saw him. He was seven years old. Never saw him. He had leukemia. Never saw him. Never heard his voice. None of that stuff. It's her first child, obviously. And I remember saying to her once, when I was eight or nine, uh, remember this song that you used to sing to me? And I sang the little song. And she started crying, and she said, I never sang that song to you. That's the song I sang to Bobby, my, her son. Mm-hmm. And after he passed away, I just never wanted to sing that again. It was his little song to comfort him. So that would have only happened before you were even born? Exactly. I asked her if she remembered taking me in my stroller down the street in this small town of Troy, and stopping at, a, at a, because I wanted to stop at a window because there was animals and there were puppies and things in the window. Yeah, and she said that wasn't you, and that was your brother. But and, I described and, everything to her, and so it I didn't have even been, live in that town. These were memories that you saw. I saw other people's lives. It couldn't, yeah, it couldn't have been you had heard a story or you remembered it firsthand. No, because I didn't live with her. I wouldn't have heard any of these stories. Sure. I didn't do those things. My grandparents pushed me in a stroller. My grandparents got me my first haircut and my first dog, not my mother. Hmm. So those were the, some times. And then there were times I would um, 
make my grandfather and grandmother uncomfortable because I would say, well, back in the old country, didn't you do this and that and the other thing? This was in Wales. And they would say, how do you, why, what, how would you know any of that, you know? Yeah. Uh, we and had again, one TV not, not and it got two channels, so I wasn't, and I wasn't listening to any news and I was too small to understand back in the old country. Uh, and it would have been things that they may have discussed and you had overheard or? No. And then I told your mother this, Spence, when when we all went to London and, and Paris and then yeah. you went to Germany and we went over to Wales. Yeah. We got off the <clears throat> train in Cardiff. And I said, we need to go three blocks this way because there's going to be a, and I caught myself, there's going to be a shop that has the Davis plaid, is mm-hmm. what the rest of it was, and they know where my grandparents' house was. I mean, I didn't say all that to her. I just said, we need to go but down a few blocks. You had that feeling, that inclination. I'd been there. Uh, and I'd obviously, you have never been, been all, to Cardiff before. I'd, I knew my way around Wales in a heartbeat. I knew. Do you, do you tie that directly to that? Experience yes. you had as a kid? Yes, I know like so. Like you had been? I know so. I was shown that place okay, without me knowing what it was. Right. Um, it was then 50 years later still in there somewhere. Correct. I also knew that I was going to marry a woman with dark hair and that I would have two children. From Again, from that experience somehow? Yeah. yeah. So how do you... <laughs> and it's... Sometimes it freaks me out, and other times it's comforting because it's like, oh, the stories do come true. Yeah, uh, the images happen. Mm-hmm. There's a, there was a reason for me to see those. How do you explain that experience? Is is it I, something you would qualify as a religious experience, or is it yeah some part of it? I feel like it was very divine, very spiritual, and in a and I I do that versus religious, okay. that kind of a divine. Presence, a spiritual presence, not a singular religion. Sure. In fact, I know so. I, I, in my heart, I know that for me or in my head, um, that that was a divine exposure and experience. Um, yeah, I, I took myself to Istanbul mm-hmm. and stayed a week alone, and we, I got uh, a notice under my hotel door asking me to go to the. Uh, U.S. Embassy because there was a conflict going on starting in Syria mm-hmm. and an uprising in, in the square right where I was staying. And it was about the prime minister was the uprising and then the Syrian stuff that came to fruition two or three years later. I didn't look at a map. I set out and said, all right, so I started walking. knew how to get to the And I went now. to the embassy and I... Knew which door to go in, and I knew that there were going to be four chairs that you had to sit in one until they called you. I just knew there there were black, black painted chairs, wooden chairs. I just sometimes yeah. it just happens. Just yeah. it's like oh, I've seen this, I know this, and it's not unhinging until I think about it. I just know it, it feels and then later I go, oh wait, when I reflect on it, there's no way you're supposed to know this. Right. As I was going to ask, do you? So in that in that case, you didn't think about what you're doing or how you were getting there, or you just I just felt knew, that you I just knew to go. Yeah, like you don't have to think about the route you take to work every morning. You just no, that's right. Get, or or leave yeah. and then or show breathe. Up there. You know, yeah. you just yeah. do it, and then later you go, wait a minute, this is odd that I knew how to get to the embassy mm-hmm. or where to get to this little music spot. 
And is it, I'm trying to compare it to something like Deja Vu or like, but is it, is it along those lines or is it more? Yeah. Because Deja Vu in the moment feels out of place. Right. And it sounds right, like right, this right. is different in that it feels much more natural than that or yeah. intuitive or. When this happens to me, it feels like I get a, I, I usually sigh of, <sighs> that it feels like, like some giant or... puzzle was a piece just went together again. Okay. This slid in, mm-hmm. and that the parts are coming together instead to of it. you know unsettling. It's always mm-hmm. calming. It's always calming when that happens, instead of uh, catching me off guard or making me nervous. Yeah. When I tell other people about it, though, I almost always start shaking, which I am doing right now. I get you, because I get, it feels like it's. Sometimes it's I feel very like it's personal or yeah, sometimes I feel like um this was a very sacred and special thing that happened it's to meant me specifically for you. And and not in a selfish way. Right. But uh, but that you don't want to sensationalize it or or mm-hmm. weaken it by talking about it. It's an ex- hmm. it's an experience more than it is a verbal expression. And I, I'm sure you've had, I don't know what the analogy would be, but you're in love with somebody, you're in love with your wife. Mm-hmm. You can talk about it all the time, but you it's really hard to describe. Mm-hmm. You can, there are words for certain things, but then there are, it's just pure emotion or feeling. Well, that, and I think I can relate to that, and that's the whole reason that I make music and make exactly. art. Like there's, there you go. if there were a way to describe it verbally, then you wouldn't have to do it in this in other way. In another way, mm-hmm. right. And that's something from just the the reading and the research I've done about other because there are now you know thousands of documented cases of near yes. death experiences yes. or out of body experiences or yeah. however you want to categorize it. But almost everyone says that that it's you can't really describe it that there's no way to do it justice through words because like like you said there's so many elements of it where. You can't really describe what was happening, that's or right. there were no words exchanged, no or you words. never even saw this entity or thing, whatever. Yeah. But and yet you knew, right? Do you remember, like hearing or sensing anything? I do remember, even while I was gone, and this was odd. Even while I was, I left the room, so to speak. I heard my grandmother crying, saying, "He can't be dead." And this is when they were working on the adrenaline. While you were, I was gone. I wasn't dead. anywhere in the room, yeah. but I heard. You were I getting heard that information her still voice. somehow. My grandparents um, were so critically important to me that if I'm in the stillness of whatever, I can hear their voices, mm-hmm. their accents, their voices. But I remember that was unsettling to me because. I remember being concentrating the, on what I was seeing and hearing my grandmother and trying to turn away from where I was going. I wanted mm-hmm. to figure out what was wrong with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do remember that. And you, you see, it's still emotional. I'm 66 years old. My grandmother this would was, be 100 and something now. Right. And this happened almost when 60 I was years seven. ago. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, what the heck? Um, so it's still close. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've had experiences all throughout your life that relate that to we, that moment that do it the callback really, right. it never goes away yeah. it's a callback um, and and certain things you know, I like that phrase that callback I haven't used that I thought about it that way 
But there are certain things that are so important in your life. I can remember the day you were born and delivering you, and you're 30 years old. Right. So, I mean, I, that's just immediate recall. Yeah. I remember hearing that. I haven't thought about that for a long time. And I remember when I took all the stuff out of my mouth and nose, and I was so hoarse, I had to whisper. I remember wanting to talk about that I was gone, but you, but I was gone. But Did I you, was gone. Yeah, so I wanted you to, to your tell them about it. I wanted to tell my grandparents that I had left and I saw them and I was flying, floating, mm-hmm. and I I couldn't. Do it. I mean, I was too little. I was too young. So you, but I you remember never, wanting. Well, yeah, did, they heard or? over the years. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know. Just not right away. And then no, okay. no. And what was their take on it? Almost everybody. I don't know how I described it to them because it wasn't recorded. Mm-hmm. But when I would bring it up as a child, it made people quiet. Okay. Um, made them very, very quiet. Like an un- in an uncomfortable Uncomfortably way? quiet. Okay. And so I didn't talk about it very much. Um, my grandparents both thought I was a miracle that I was there. You know, mm-hmm. I survived. And how much of that they thought was drug-induced or, or whatever, uh, I don't know. I would never know. I never, I never had those kind of conversations. Yeah. My grandfather died when I was 12. My grandmother, when I was in my 20s, but we didn't. She, I made a lot of people very uncomfortable because I was special. And there must be a reason why I survived. And sure. Well, especially all that kind you, of stuff. If you have to compare that with another kid in your same town who had the Died. same experiences and didn't make it. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that would be a really tough thing to talk So part about. of me, all my life, I wanted to be special, and I didn't want to be special. I wanted to be right. special in a different way than, oh, you're a survivor. Right. You're the kid who survived and couldn't hear, and you've got grandparents for parents, and I didn't want that kind of special. Right. But I realized that I have been blessed or fortunate to be here. I mean, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't say that that is a blessing, because it could have been totally different. Yeah, I guess that that would be the the last thing I wanted to ask about. Did it? Man, obviously, it sounds like it has. But on a philosophical or spiritual level, mm-hmm. did that permanently change the way that you look at yes. life and your your place in it? I knew that there was a. I will just say God, a spiritual. So that entity. absolutely, absolutely confirmed, confirmed it for you. Just in absolutely that. all of my okay. life, I've known that. Okay, because of that experience. And then I've gone to church where they talk about God and stuff. And some of that, I think, is our <clears throat> human failness, frailty about having to describe a deity, a creator. Mm-hmm. And part of me, and this sounds maybe egocentric, but when you have felt like you were with the creator, like some of that stuff may not be exactly right. I don't know how to counter it but it doesn't feel doesn't, like that's the experience doesn't match with your no experience and so the a couple of things that are takeaways from that is i'm very clear that there is a creator mm-hmm. um and that how we understand that may be different because my physical body stayed someplace but my call it soul spirit essence went somewhere else and in that moment, that was you and your body was not. Right. Although yeah. when I 
what I visually saw was a body, not my own, never saw my own. I never saw my feet dangling or my arms or whatever, but I felt I saw an arm around me, and I don't know if that was a kid's way of saying, I have to have something concrete or this doesn't make any sense and it would right. scare me. It's, you were experiencing it in the way that your brain could handle experiencing <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. So yeah. I had to make it normal. Mm-hmm. I don't know that. But that that spiritual knowing has always been there. And the other thing is a feeling of, and this is, I don't know how to really articulate this. I know when I get off base in my life because I feel like I am here to do something, to make mm-hmm. a difference, not to be the president or a celebrity or any of that kind of, or the biggest scientist. But you have some, you have a purpose. I have a purpose. And if I get too far away from that, then I, I'm very uncomfortable. I, I, I get kind of antsy and I realize I'm away from my purpose okay. and my passion. Mm-hmm. And so my niche has been fairly narrow in my career. And people ask about that. Are you not motivated or you don't have the attitude or the anxiety or the drive? And it's, no, I know what I am supposed supposed to do. do. And I know when I'm doing it. There are days when I know this is is something only I can do. Mm -hmm. And that's not with ego. It's like, that's what you were designed to do, so do that. Yeah. I mean, that alone is a huge gift. And and it's usually around someone's life that we're working with, and that's happened enough to keep me in that path. Yeah. Do you think that's one of the reasons that you got into a service-oriented career in the first place? Oh, yeah. I think there's something to that, definitely, because I, I know I'm supposed to be a helper versus a producer or a you know, producer of a well, product or an inventor. You, you start out in pre-med. In, in medicine. Because it didn't scare me. I'm not afraid right. of hospital stuff. You've seen me in hospitals. I've been with you in a hospital. Yeah. Those things don't, that's like another environment where I'm okay. And some people get freaked by that. Right. And so because of my life being part of that medical thing and somebody saved me, I wanted, I thought the way I could save people was doing what those physicians did and nurses. Um, I'm, just, I'm just looking at, you know, whether it be starting out medicine, with medicine or working with people with disabilities and disadvantages or teaching mm-hmm. or all the things that you've done throughout your career are really service oriented they're all service oriented and giving back and helping yeah. helping somebody help themselves yeah that's what motivates me right and that's what i that's where i'm saying that's that narrow that's band where i know right. i'm supposed to be doing i'm supposed to be helping other people help themselves versus mm-hmm. being a producing music or a piece of poetry or writing a book i think i keep thinking i need to do a book and a narrative and that's what I was doing this afternoon. And it's like slogging through mud. It yeah. doesn't come as easy. That's not what energizes you. And, no, yeah. no. So, yeah, I, I feel strong sense of purpose, strong sense of spiritual direction because of the experience I had. When I talk to you about this, it's the longest I've talked to you or anybody really about this. Even if it was just an imagination, I don't want to know that. Because it's but, so real to me. Because it could be. I mean, there's every, someday, you know, what if things aren't the way they appear, that kind of theory. What if it was your brain doing things chemically because your body is in whatever distress, mm-hmm. and so it protects you Some or it coats you. and it, Defense mechanism. It, yeah, yeah. What if that's just the, 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 the amazing way? I've thought about that many times. Maybe that was the spirit's way of protecting me 
uh, by sending me on a little journey when I really, really, really wasn't. It's all my imagination. But, but I'm seven years old, and that's right. where I go back. I couldn't have imagined those things. Well, I and, didn't have and, them. And you wouldn't have had that knowledge that's what 40, I mean. 50 year, years later. No. And the stories wouldn't all align as closely as they do across time yeah. and distance and culture and all, you know, where you can walk into a room with two other people and you have and they're very similar stories. Similar. Yeah. yeah. That would be so informed by your personality and your experience and your culture and yeah. everything yeah. else that That's there's true. no way they would align like that. That is true. But I've thought about it so many times when you get away from, you know, uh, as time goes away from the incident, mm-hmm. you know, did I dream that? Did I make that up? That can't really be true. And then as soon as I go down that path, something pulls me right back going, yes, it is, and here's why, and here's, yeah. you know, something happens again. Well, and, and what is what is true on yeah. some level either? Because yeah. if, it, if you experienced it and it had a meaningful impact on you, then it's real. Right. There's but no I, other way to confirm that as real, quote-unquote. Yeah, part of me feels blessed, and also no one should ever have to do this, but I've been around people who are dying, mm-hmm. and they start reaching for loved ones or saying hi to somebody who's died. And mm-hmm. and is that the body's way, the brain's way, the chemicals that we're made up of, of preparing us for a journey, but it really... I don't know, but I know that's a phenomenon as well, that well, people start talking about, I saw great-grandma last night, or I, whatever. Were you... And they're dying. Were you there when... Grandma was talking oh, to absolutely. her mom. Absolutely, yes. Not, oh, yeah. Not I saw. She was having a conversation. She was having a conversation, with and and with Jim. And yeah. Jim had already died. Yeah. Jim's looking really good. She said to him, <laughs> "Like you know." And and again, that's so. Mm-hmm. It's very common. It's very universal. Yeah, and but and what even causes that even like finer details of that. Like people almost always report seeing someone. As they were when they were younger, yes. not when they were ill, eighty, and yes, exactly. when they passed, but when they were thirty and they had they first look met good them again, more. Yeah. yeah, they look great again and healthy again. And again, that's so. Yep, there has to be something to it, or there would be more <laughs> variation, right? Not everyone is going to experience that same thing. You would, but maybe think. it's the same thing that is called red blood vessels or red, you know, corpuscles or whatever. You know what I mean? It's the brain coats itself that way universally, so everybody does that. I don't yeah. know. Um, it just seems like there would be so to many that variables out. that yeah. it would be almost impossible to have those similarities pop up as frequently as they do. Yeah, but, you know, we have drugs that act in us all the time, you know, the endorphins and the True. you know cortisol and stuff that cause us to be who we are. So I don't know. I try to scientifically figure it out. All I... But on some deeper way of knowing, where you don't have the facts and you don't have the proof, you just know. Yeah, that's where I rest with it. Mm-hmm. Even though I'll do, I'll go through the doubt, I'll go through the doubt. I don't know. You know, yeah. the world's a mystery, and the well, world isn't fully defined. And that's the thing we we always assume that right now we is have all there is figured out. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that we know the most we've ever known and will yeah. ever know. Of course, but. I mean, just look at from you know the time that, in the time that you've been alive, how many things have oh, yeah. changed. And we didn't have that, cell phones, we didn't have computers, we didn't have any of this well, kind of even, wireless anything. Even just looking at you know medical knowledge. Oh yes, exactly. And things that never oh, yeah. would have, heart transplants, you know, 
Because it would have been impossible 50 years ago. Now surgery. Every day. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Happens constantly. Survival rates of... I started working with traumatic head injured folks and there was no literature because they didn't survive before that. I'm like, what? You know? So, yeah. We don't know what we don't know. And there's stuff that's happening all around us. We just haven't been able to identify it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, that radio wave... Who knew where that? I mean, right. it was always there, but right. who did something with it? And till we knew to look for it, exactly, and how to tap into it, we would have never known. How do you, you know? Right. Sometimes we bump into a reality, and other times we make up a reality. Mm-hmm. I don't want my out of body near death thing to be a made up thing. If my brain is tricking me, it's a great trick. Kind of don't want to do a part two to this episode because your dad's story is one of the most perfect things I've ever heard. Yeah. Maybe literally. It's beautiful. What an amazing story, man. Yeah. And I, I had I had no idea how heavy and how real and how huge that story was until we started talking about it. I'd only heard bits and pieces throughout the years. and It sounds like... It sounds very literally like a pivotal and like like ever present moment in your dad's life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean and and to have that experience at that at at the age of 7 too. Right. Like a very young but also like a defining age. Yeah. I think we do have to dive a little deeper into. We do. We we have stuff to talk about. I mean, yeah. like I have I have like a full sheet of notes, and I know you do too. I just like don't. I want to like leave that moment and let that be forever. How about this? Yeah, we'll give you a week off. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because we've gone way over our time for this for this week. Yep. And uh, we'll come back with part two and dive into what this might be and where we're going with, with this in the future. Now that we kind of know some things about medicine and some of the theories on uh, what this experience might actually be. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll see what that medicine says. And, um, and if it is a trick, we'll look at what the trick might look like. Um, good trick as it may be. Uh, but for now, we're going to, we're going to leave you with that story. Have a have a beautiful week and uh, we'll we'll see you next week on the What If Podcast. Peace. We'll be back next week with another episode of the What If Podcast. Learn more at www.whatifpodcast.com.